This is Lifting the Lid. Conversations with fascinating people living life on their terms. Our next guest requires no introduction. Well, on today's episode of Lifting the Lid, we have one of Australia's most versatile actors and filmmakers, Anthony Hayes. I was going to say Australia's favourite, but I think Gary Sweet has that trademarked. <laughs> Maybe Deborah Malman. <laughs> All right, mate, I want to start with why. So, you know, you grew up in a working class suburb with a bricklayer and a teacher for parents. How and why did you get into acting? It's a good question. I I didn't actually decide that I wanted to be an actor till I was probably about 17 or 18, but I started when I was nine years old. It just started out as something fun to do on the weekend. Probably my parents putting me into like a weekend drama class, theatre class to get a bit of time away from the kids was probably the beginning of it. And my dad kind of said he had memories of, you know, we'd watch Fred Astaire movies together and, you know, I'd come down the stairs dressed as Fred Astaire doing things um like every actor kind of says you know yeah and uh i started doing ads when i was nine and uh you know signed with an ad agency off the back of winning a couple of awards bizarrely at nine years old for theater around uh, around brisbane and uh then i did 25 ads in the space of a year so i was kind of like you know wow. the wheat bix kid the orange juice kid the every kid imaginal flogging every product under the sun and then got my first proper acting role when I was um, 10 or 12, 10, 11. And uh, I did a show called uh, Animal Park in Queensland and uh, Skippy and then Ocean Girl, then uh, and Paradise Beach before Ocean Girl when I was 15. And then it got to, you know, I obviously spent year 9, 11 and 12 on a film set instead of at school. So I actually wasn't at school for most of those kind of uh, informative teenage years. Um, what films or show was was that on? That was on all of those. It was through that period. So it was like oh, right. Ocean Girl, Paradise Beach, Animal Kingdom. I, I mean, every time I had jobs like that, I'd, I'd get pulled out of school. And um, uh, so I spent a lot of time away with a tutor, trying to keep my grades up uh, and not uh, achieving it very successfully. And I used to drop back into high school every now and again to try and keep touch with reality and my friends and things. And, uh, you know, I'd get picked on and bullied and beaten up. And I actually, you know, grew to kind of loathe going back in a way because I, um, uh, I just felt, you know, the, the adult world was a, a more kind place than, than that. And then it was, you know, time for everyone to go to university. So I kind of just looked around and went, okay, well, I've failed most subjects now. I've, um, I even failed drama performance because the uh, high, high school high school teacher at the time had a real disliking for me. I think she was a bit of a failed drama. I was going to say, is that is that because you were getting success and you were probably more successful than she ever was? Yeah. Was there jealousy in that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, I was doing Paradise Beach at the time, which obviously, you know, was one of the poorer productions in Australian television history, but I was a, I was a 15 year old kid and I was cutting my teeth yeah. on things. And, you know, it was a big, it was a big deal for someone of my age. Um, and, and from where I was from to, you know, be on national television in a kind of a, a big show. And I remember, you know, the days that I did turn up and, you know, I would do a performance in class to get grades and, and in front of the whole, uh, the whole class, she would make comments like, well, I mean, you're doing paradise beach, so what can you expect? And just basically humiliate, <laughs> humiliate me wow. in front of it. And so I actually failed drama performance, and it's on my uh, school report cards. 
And that was one of the contributing factors to me not having the grades to actually get into university anywhere. Um, wow. So I remember writing probably naive, you know, passionate letters to um, universities around Australia going, I'm an actor and blah, 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 and, you know, the human condition and understanding that. And I want to get into criminal psychology and the mind and explore that. And, you know, they basically kindly wrote back and said, sorry, kid, <laughs> look at your grades. I don't give a shit you're on TV. You know, that doesn't qualify you for getting into university, you know, go back and do the hard slog. So it was basically then that I kind of went, well. So there was no plan B. There was no plan B, you know, and acting wasn't a plan A. That was that was a r- ridiculous notion that that would last and that I'd be a 42-year-old man you know, sitting here now t- having a career behind me like this. It just wasn't, it just wasn't something that happened to people from where I was from. I mean, you know, from working class kind of Logan City. The only person that had come out of there was probably, strangely enough, with the name Hayes, Darren Hayes from Savage Garden, who was, you know, who my, who at the time <laughs> my parents used to get crank calls from all the time from people uh, ringing up trying to get Darren Hayes because our last name was Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he kind of lived down the road in, in Woodridge. Really? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't the plan. And then when I had nothing else, I went, okay, let's embrace this. And it wasn't, you know, I moved to Sydney uh, when I was, uh, well, I moved to Melbourne first, actually, when I was about 16. Um, and then kind of floated back and forth between trying to drop into school. And, that, and then when school actually finished, I drove down to Sydney uh, with my dad and my brother and, said goodbye and that was it. And I was 17-year-old in Sydney with, you know, going, this better work. So with the commercials and all the child acting, I'm assuming back then that there wasn't the type of remuneration that you might see nowadays. No, it was uh, it, it was very, very low income back then. I mean, there, there, there weren't laws at that stage in place for child actors and, you know, uh, even even the kind of working hours and conditions that... So there's no nurse on set with you, mate? The, no, it was just like, kid, get in here, do your job, you know, squeeze in a bit of schoolwork and, you know, as long as you know your lines and turn up, we don't really give a shit, you know? I mean, it wasn't exactly... There were nice people involved in it, but it just wasn't It just wasn't regulated the way it is now. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of work, long hours, and in ads, you know, it would be a couple of hundred bucks to be the face of yeah, wow. Wheat Bix, you know, maybe 300 bucks, which which as a 10-year-old kid, wow, you know, amazing. But in, you know, in terms of kind of what you get for ads now, crazy. With those roles that you did early, The Boys was a real pivotal role for you, wasn't it? Just tell me about the lead up into getting that role and then what that experience was like. Yeah, that was a big turning point for me. It was a big turning point for me professionally to kind of elevate my career and take it out of essentially being branded a soap actor, you know, after Paradise Beach, a failed soap actor, no less. You know, the reviews for Paradise Beach were not favourable and deservedly so. And, uh, you know, there was talk at that stage from memory about doing Home and Away and all that kind of thing. And agents at the time saying, just roll into Home and Away, roll into this, you know, there's roles there for you. And and I remember just kind of going, if I if I take this step and I do another soap straight after this one, then that's kind of where my career is going to head. You'll be Ray Ma. And, you know, the Ray Ma, you know, signed on to that much older than I was. And I always said to myself, if I'm, you know, if I turn around and I'm 50 and I'm still battling out like I am now, then I'll bloody sign up to it 
myself for the rest of my life. You know, it's a it's a great job. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's great pay and it's um and, and and good people. But as a young kid, kind of starting out, going where do I want to be? And and mind you, this is at a time when you know the Hemsworths didn't go from home and away to Thor and Margot Robbie didn't go from you know, Neighbours to yeah. Martin Scorsese with one step. You know what mm. I mean? This was at a time where it was very frowned upon to be a soap actor and that was, there was a difference there. There was a legitimate actor and there were soap actors and that's the way it was and that's what you got categorised as. So when the boys came along, it was a big turning point. It was kind of where I wanted to be and I remember uh, the audition process with David Wenham was quite intense. I remember, you know, discussions, even when I got the role, that could I stand up with these other actors, these, you know, David Wenham and Paulson and Jeanette Cronin and um, Lynette Curran and Tony Collette and actually be good enough? Or would I be the weak link in that in that movie with the experience that I had and the, the background? So I wanted to prove myself. And I remember Rowan Woods saying to me, the first day we got on set, um, he just kind of simply came up and he said, I don't want to see you for seven weeks. I want to see Stevie Sprague. That was a kind of big turning point for me in terms of the psychology of performance and acting. That Going full method, staying in that role. Yeah, he just wanted me to go there. And up until that point, I hadn't had the material to even contemplate mm. that. You know, that it just wasn't an option. It's like Gromit from Paradise Beach. I mean, what are you going to cool I'll go bodyboarding you know you know what I mean so <laughs> yeah so you know that for me was a, a challenge that was laid down in front of me I knew I wanted to rise to it I knew that's the direction I wanted my career to be I wanted to be respected you know not famous and that was always my thing I, my, my idols as a kid were always you know Sidney Poitier and, and Spencer Tracy and Jimmy Stewart and all these you know and Marlon Brando obviously and all these great actors that my dad and I used to watch together and it changed my life, that movie. That decision to cast me and give me that opportunity, I you know, am thankful to this day. And going straight off the back of that, and you mentioned some of those names there, you have worked with some of Australia's biggest names. You know, there's Hugh Jackman, Heath Ledger, Phil Noyce, Tony Collette, David Wenham, Guy Pearce, Joel Edgerton, David Michaud, Tony Ayres. I mean, the list goes on. Mm. Tell me what you learned from them and I guess how they helped your development as an actor and a filmmaker. I think what I learned from them most of all is that it's a craft and it's a job and it's something that you need to take seriously to get better at. I think all those people that you talk about, they excel at their profession, they excel at their craft because they're passionate about it and because their priorities are in the right place. They want to be great actors or they want to be in great productions and they do that and they make those choices as um, as artists. And that it's the work ethic and the dedication to trying to excel and to be part of better productions and to be part of meaningful productions. Um and not just do the cash grabs, you know, have a, have a bit of integrity as an artist, which is hard to do when you're in and out of work and it ebbs and flows and you got kids to feed and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's probably the hardest thing to do, but that's what I learned from those guys earlier on. And, you know, keeping in mind that my goal was, I want to be the boys actor. I don't want to be the soap actor that, you know, it's something that I've, that I've used to steer my path ever since. And how hard is that to do? in this country to kind of hold out for those roles and those things and work with those filmmakers? How hard is it to do that and not do the cash grab in between? It's really hard. It's really, really, really hard. Um, you know, I, there was there was a period there where I was seemingly in every great Aussie film 
around and, you know, people thought I was a millionaire, you know, in, in the real world. Like I remember my dad's friends would go, gee, you must be rolling in it. And I was like, dude, I'm getting, you know, 700 bucks for a day. I've got a supporting role in this movie. It might be with big stars, but, you know, I've got five days work crammed, you know, my whole role's in five days work and I'm 700 bucks. And I go, cool, what's that, a few grand? <laughs> you know, realistically, yeah. comes out, you're on the red carpet, you're in a borrowed suit, you're pretending. And then, and you know, even if I did three great films in a year, what's that, 20, 30 grand? I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing, you know. So it's hard. It's a hard it's hard to stick to that plan and, you know, it's hard to have integrity. But when I make the wrong choice or I'm, or in the past when I've done that, I've regretted it. Having that mindset, is that what led you to wanting to do more writing and then directing as you've done? Yeah, I remember uh, distinctly kind of, you know, there was a lack of opportunity. I wasn't particularly drawn to a lot of the material that was out there. Um, I mean, also you got to know what type of actor you are as well. You know, there's a, you can't do everything. You're not, you're not skilled in every genre, everything. And there was a, there was a time there many years ago, probably 20 years ago now, where there was a lot of quirky kind of comedy stuff going on. And I just didn't feel that, that, that I would be good at that. And so there was a kind of glut of opportunity there. And I just thought, well, I consider and complain about it as an actor and complain that nobody's out there writing me these great roles, which is so arrogant to think that you know what I mean it's like why don't they know who I am why aren't you sending me these genius scripts that you've labored over for years and choosing me I mean it's you know crazy to think that and I thought I can be a whinging actor or I can give it a go myself and it's taken a long long time and there's been many setbacks and many failures and but you know now I have a lot of scripts with a lot of companies that are trying to find their feet and I've learned how to be a better writer through just dedication, really, you know, keep keep at it. Animal Kingdom, so that opened up the door for a lot of people. What did it do for you? I mean, you know a lot of those guys anyway. What was it like working with those guys? And did you ride a bit of the same success that some of those other guys did? I think my contribution to Animal Kingdom was probably too minute to for it to have an effect on me. It was in terms of my career. I think, um, you know, those other guys all those guys, Misha included, you know, uh, Arkapur included, Liz Watts included. I mean, yep. everyone included in that thing, their careers were elevated and right, rightly so. You know, I, I was living in London at the time and I remember they offered me a, <clears throat> a role, which was actually Justin Rosniak's role in it originally. And I looked at it and went, oh, is it worth fucking coming all the way back from London for this thing? You know, they're not going to pay for my flight. And But I really loved the script. And I was like, what a great, what a great script this is. And, you know, but I'm going to have, you know, whatever I make, I'm going to spend on my flight, you know. And uh, and so I actually said no to it at first, to Rosniak's role. And then uh, they came back and said, well, what about this other role with Guy Pearce, which was a, on the page was a bigger role. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll do, I want to work with Guy Pearce again. And these scenes will be great with him. They're great scenes. And then at the end, <laughs> I think it was a day before I started shooting I came back from London and I got an email from Misha saying, by the way, I've cut all your, all your dialogue out of this. Sorry oh, about that, mate. And so kind of going into it, I was like, oh, there's kind of nothing left. So, I mean, you know, for me, I'm kind of a featured extra that gets one, you know, good scene in that. Um, but I'm really proud to be part of that movie. And um, it's, um, I think it just had its 
10 year anniversary the other day um but well, actually it did because I just saw a um, chat. So there was one with um, Ben Mendelson and Jackie Weaver and Joel and David Michaud doing a bit of a Q&A. Yeah. So how old was Ben doing that? He would have been in his 40s. I guess so. I think Ben's probably 50, early 50s now. Yeah. Yeah, but Ben and Jackie had a real resurgence after that. Is something like that inspiring though, knowing that age is not necessarily a factor? Because I know I've heard Ben say before that, he thought his career was pretty much done at that point. He did. And then, you know, The Dark Knight and Star Wars and all these things, Spielberg, all this stuff opened up after that. Does something like that fuel it for you as well, knowing that age is not necessarily a factor and, you know, the right role, the right film can still open up doors? 100%. They are the stories that, as an actor, you cling so tightly to because you often wonder why the hell you're still chasing the dream, why are you are still doing it. It's a difficult path, so... You know, I mean, Jackie Weaver, I mean, who she, in her wildest dreams, she would not have thought <laughs> that she would be a two-time Oscar nominee from where she was before Animal Kingdom and that she'd now be all over the world in absolute demand. You know, and you like to think that the cream rises to the top, that these, these actors, I mean, Jackie Weaver is, you know, one of the greatest actors in the world of her, of her age group. And Ben Mendelsohn, when I was growing up, was an idol of mine. Hmm. Mendelssohn was it. I remember I remember the first time I worked with Mendelssohn, I was really intimidated because I'm just like, wow, it's Mendelssohn. He was my god as an actor. And um, I was doing a show called Farscape, just an episode of Farscape, and Mendelssohn was doing it. And look, for me, it felt like not a low point in my career, but it wasn't a high point. So I can only imagine <laughs> Ben, yeah. Ben, yeah, what he <laughs> thought when him and I are sitting here in five hours makeup with our heads completely wrapped in this purple prosthetics, we look like, you know, we look like a Smurf pigs, you know, with this <laughs> thing and it's a full kind of stuff in your eyes and the teeth and it took hours to do. And I remember um, I didn't have a trailer and Ben had a trailer and I was kind of out there and it was so hard to wear all this stuff because you put you put the costume on and you put gloves on and you put this thing around your head and you put those things in your eyes. There's actually not one part of your body or skin that is sensing the outside world in a sense. You, you're just completely wrapped, you know. You're like a, you're like mummified in this thing. And so I'm sitting out there, oh, depressed, kind of like, oh, God, this is horrendous. And then I hear this, mate, mate. Don't fucking sit out there. Fucking, <laughs> come in the fucking trailer. Just fucking come in here with me, mate. And I was like, oh, it's fuck. It's Mendelssohn. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, man. So I come in. I'm just sitting there kind of half perched on the end of his um, spare couch. And he's then going, wow, it's you know, Mendelssohn. Jesus. And I just, <laughs> I'm looking at the floor and I just hear this voice go, this is what it's fucking come to. <laughs> Look across, and there's my hero wrapped in some blue Smurf pig outfit, lying down on this sofa, just going, "It's it. This is rock bottom. This is it. You can't even know. You don't even know who I am behind this stuff. This is it. It's an episode of some sci-fi show. It's not even my thing. I don't even like sci-fi. And I'm Ben Mendelsohn, and I've been in fifty films, and I'll never forget that." moment and so to see then ben get what he deserved as a performer that he's so great for him to then have animal kingdom and get that breakthrough you know after being so brilliant for so long it's 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 really heartening it's you know it's again it's the dream that you kind of hope that you go the cream will rise it just will you know 
I mean, a lot of those guys then chased the LA thing off the back of that. I mean, Ben had, you know, I guess famously done that for a lot of years. I mean, I think I remember him when Heath Ledger died, he told stories about how Heath would open up his house in LA and everyone could go and stay there. You know, he wanted people around and Ben was out there not getting any success, but, you know, he'd open the door and Ben would sleep on his couch. You know, he went back and forth for years. I mean, have you gone and done the pilot season and chased the Hollywood dream? Does that appeal to you? Well, here's the thing. It's, you know, it's exactly what you say, is that if someone of the talent with 30 films, 30 Australian films under his belt, like Ben Mendelsohn, goes over to Hollywood and can't crack it because the films haven't cracked America. It's, you know, for me, I just go, fuck, what are your chances, man? Like what, you know, do you want to go over there and sit on a couch or do you want to stay here and sharpen your skills? And so I was always of of the opinion that being the sort of character actor I was and I didn't look like a god, I didn't look like a Hollywood star, I didn't look like a Chris Hemsworth, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a pretty looking dude that it just wasn't my place. You know, I would have been better off in the UK when where people like Ray Winston were the big, big names at the time, you know, uh, and Gary Oldman's and these people that, you know, Timothy Spall, all these great actors that I liked. So Hollywood to me never felt like I belonged there. So I didn't try, really. I went there a couple of times to get uh, management, and even that was hard. It was hard to get a manager. It was hard to get an agent. I went a couple of times, and, you know, even with, you know, probably by that stage 20 films under my belt and a great reel of acting it's just you just couldn't crack open those doors you know and so I eventually got and this you know the beauty of doing Animal Kingdom now comes back and the choices that you make about integrity over money and all these kind of things where you go if I didn't get on that plane and I didn't pay for my own flight from London and if I didn't do that small role, then I wouldn't have worked with David Michaud and then I wouldn't have done The Rover. The Rover, yeah. And I wouldn't have been in Hollywood with Brad Pitt doing War Machine. Hopefully that's the path of integrity. You know, you make the right choices for the right reasons and work with the people you want to work with and, you know, that's the result you want. So, you know, even on the back of that, I remember I couldn't get into to CAA over there and I was knocking on the door and I was meeting and, you know, no one wanted to take me on and then... I got the role in War Machine. And so I knocked on the door and again, I said, look, I've just got this role. It's Brad Pitt. It's a second lead. It's a David Michaud film. It's Netflix. It's, you know, and they took me on, you know, Kim Hodgett took me on um, an agent there, but we couldn't get a second agent to take me on. And they usually kind of double team you in a sense. And then I kind of, you know, when War Machine didn't hit the heights that people wanted it to and didn't get the reviews that it wanted and, you know, I got kicked out of CAA as quickly as I got in there. So that's the brutality of the place, you know. If it looks like you're going to be a winning card, then they're in your corner. But when the chips are down, they're not. You mentioned Brad Pitt there in War Machine. Just tell me what it was like having such a big international star on set like that. You know, obviously he must have been a fan of Animal Kingdom, you know, to work with David. You know, what was that experience like working on that film that I imagine had a much bigger budget this time around? And then, you know, even off camera, did you spend much time? What was, I guess, that awe around him like? There's a reason that dude's a movie star and there's a reason that he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. I mean, the charisma oozes off the dude. Um, You know, he's the most handsome dude you'll ever see in your life on screen and off. The thing that surprised me most about him was that he's probably one of the most down-to-earth, lovely, generous people you'll meet. And, you know, I've worked with some other people that are big and they're not that. (laughs) 
so yep. you you go in kind of probably expecting the worst, I guess. Um, but the thing about him is that there's no you don't get a sense of the hierarchy with him. He doesn't allow it to happen. Um, it's everybody's set. It's everybody's movie. Everyone's equal, and so that that's what I love the most about about him. I remember um, we were in Abu Dhabi and we're all living in um, uh, this big skyscraper hotel shooting and uh i had two kids with me and and uh and my partner and they were like two and four and uh you know they only had to provide me with a tiny little room for all of us but then they put me on the same level as brad and they gave me this big penthouse thing i was like wow wow this is amazing like you guys need to do this i'm on the level level with brad and he knew I had my kids there and it was coming up to Halloween and his kids were there. And, um, you know, he said, why don't we do something for Halloween? And so he organized this whole thing for my kids and his, his kids to go through the entire hotel. And he put, you know, candy and decorations through this, you know, multi-level hotel and got all the crew and cast that were staying there to, you know, have these costumes and bowls of lollies just to kind of give an experience to a normal experience to his kids and my kids. And so, you know, he didn't have to do that. And I, I thought that was a really beautiful thing for him to do. It was really nice. And I think it's those stories that keep you coming back. I mean, you can meet plenty of assholes and plenty of people that can make, you know, those places a really miserable times. But I guess yeah. almost like a football team when people say, what are you going to miss? Or I miss going to being, you know, in the locker room. Or It's all those types of things that I miss because of this camaraderie that you can build between it. So it must be a lot of that, you know, also keeps you coming back for more for those types of experiences on and off camera. Well, that's right. And that's what David Michaud does. This is why he's so great because he puts together a team that makes you feel like you're part of a great thing across the board. And his films are always great. And uh, I think back to that War Machine experience all the time. It was, for me, it was like the pinnacle, Uh, you know, that's where you want to get to. It was with a big movie star. It was in a big film. You know, I was flown all over the world. We shot in, we shot in London uh, United Arab Emirates, France, Germany. I mean, it's nuts, man. <laughs> it's like, yeah, absolutely. you know, coming back full circle, you go, here's that kid, that Weet-Bix kid at, you know, nine years old and fuck, look what happened. It's, it's crazy. You dare to dream that stuff. And so for me, you know, I remember I, I did a film with Rolf Tahir years ago called The King is Dead. And I'd always loved Rolf Tahir's movies. And, uh, I just said to him one day, look, why do you like filmmaking? Like, what, what do you like about filmmaking? Why do you keep coming back for more? And he said, look, I've made films that people think are great, which I think are shit. And I've made films that people think are shit that I think are great. And at the end of the day, you have absolutely no control about what people think of it. All you have is the experience of making it. And that's the most important thing. And so, and, and it really resonated with me. I went, that's really what it's about. It's about working with nice people, good people, people who aren't assholes, people who aren't arrogant um, on good stories. And it's about the experience, you know, more so than, than the end result. You have no control over that, you know, you have no control over what people think, but you have control over experiences you have, you know, and how you have them and with whom you have them. So for me, that's the most important thing. It's, you know, we all want things to be a success, but I want the experience. That's what I want. I've been watching the new Derek C in France. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Series. I know this much is true, you know, which, you know, Mark Ruffalo is pretty amazing in that. Yes. But you work with him on The Light Between Oceans. Now, I've heard him say that he wants his actors to surprise him 
and to fail. <laughs> what did he say something similar to you or what type of direction did he give you on that film or or even anyone else on that film for example what's his directorial style? I've actually been emailing with him the last 2 days and last night because of that show because I'm just going man it's just like it's off the chart. I was saying I was emailing him last night just going dude I've seen twins done on screen before but this is done, this is executed so well that I swear oh, I swear that there were two different people there. I swear yeah. that those two characters, Thomas and Dominic, are two separate people, and it's the same fucking actor sitting there in front of me. <laughs> you know, it's just and, and it's seamless. And I was kind of trying to work it out, and I wrote to him. I said, "Okay, so let me. You know, is this how you did it? You obviously, you know, shot all of." Uh, Ruffalo's Dominic character first because he's got yep. a goatee. It looks like a real goatee. doesn't look stuck yes. on. And then you've gone back and you've yes. shot the exact same scenes after he's put on some weight and stuff. And even yes. even that, to you know, to take that amount of time with it, usually it's like stick on the beard, rip it off, let's get this shot while we're here. Logistically, for a production to do every location and every scene and then go back and do it all again. Is yeah, nuts, is absolutely nuts. I mean, you know what it's like. You know, it's, and he said, you know, to be honest, the hardest thing was, was matching the light, became yeah. a challenge. You know, it's like different day, different thing. But Sea in France is one of the most gifted, beautiful human beings there is. And when the opportunity came up to do the Light Between Oceans. You know, he was doing in New Zealand. I knew his films. I was like, man, he's the, you know, he's the bee's knees. And uh, I'd love to work with him. And he, you know, saw a bunch of people. But it was strangely Ben Mendelsohn, who was supposed to do my role in The Light Between Oceans. And it, and it wasn't working out for whatever reason. I don't know if he's busy or whatever it was. And Ben Mendelsohn got in Derek's ears and said, you got to look at this Hayes guy for this role, you know. And Derek seriously looked at me and I got the role. So that's how that happened. I did an audition for it and, uh, you know, I mean, for the audition, instead of doing scene, this is an indication of scene France, instead of doing a scene, Derek said, I want you to tell me a story about your life. And so you went on camera and you just looked down the barrel and you told him your life story and, you know, what hurts you the most and what you're most proud of and what you love and hate. And that was how he cast the movie. So just just on that, is that because, and we all try to, you know, if we're directing actors or trying to get things out of people. So if he knows you have a life story or how you portray that, that you can call on that to your performance. Is that the reasoning behind something like that? A hundred percent. He wants to know the person. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to see the performance because for him, if you're putting on a performance, you're heading in the wrong direction. Yep. So it's about kind of who is this person? Can I get to know this person? What are their vulnerabilities? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And how does that fit into what I'm doing? Now, the strange thing about Derek C. in France and his style is that on the face of it, he doesn't give you any direction. Hmm. He doesn't actually give you any specific direction, but he manages to get the results and makes you feel like you're having a workout as an actor far more than anyone else ever did. And one of those things was we were uh, shooting um, scenes inside the cop station and I was the cop in the light between oceans and um, scenes with Rachel Vice and she comes into the, to the cop station and starts talking to me about how her daughter's missing and her baby's missing and all this kind of stuff. And it's all scripted. It's a beautiful script. And I get a knock on the door. And this is my first day, first scene. I get a knock on the door and uh, the AD goes, okay, so they're rolling in there. So let's just head up and do it. 
and if you know anything about films, that means no rehearsal. <laughs> that means you haven't discussed it, the scene. That means you haven't touched base with the other actors that are in the scene. That means you haven't even laid eyes on the set. You don't even know what's behind that door. And they're rolling. And so you walk in and you walk in that room and you just start. <laughs> and it's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. You're going, I have no bearings whatsoever. I'm not rooted or grounded in any, in anything. You know, I have no foundations here. And so it's absolutely terrifying. But, and, and so you start improing and you start doing this thing. But eventually, you know, impro leads to, well, I've got, I've got an objective that this scene has. The, you know, we have to cover certain points. And so you end up getting on script. But you get on script once you, you you end up getting on script without any premeditation at all. You end up getting on script okay. once you've warmed into the scene. You end up getting on script with an electricity that is inside your body that has you firing and the engine's running. And there's nothing like it. It's insane. And it works. I was going to say, is that because he doesn't want you getting into, I'm on a film set and this is this and I'm sitting in a thing that's not really a police station. Does he want you literally just to not even see all that, turn straight in and then you're just performing opposite another actor? 100%. He wants you to look at what's in front of you and he wants you to take it in like it's new. And that's life, isn't it? You know? Yep, absolutely. And that could go horribly wrong. This is the Mm. the thing about it. And his projects don't go horribly wrong. I mean, one of the things that, you know, uh, a director said to me years ago when I was a kid was, you know, that casting well is 80% of your job as a director. Mm. So, you know, the man's not a fool. You're going to cast good people. You know, they can do the job they're supposed to. But I even remember trying to talk to Derek about adding something to my character on email because I was so excited. I was like, it's Derek C. in France. I want to offer something up. You know, I feel like I need to because looking at his at his projects and not having worked with him, I felt like, you know, I better bring some stuff, man, because this is people acting at their peak of their powers when they work with him. And uh, I was coming up this thing like, oh, maybe he's got, you know, from the war and PST, you know, and he's, you know, I could get some Panadol there and he's taking headache tablets. So all this stuff's com- compounding. And, and he just turned around and he said, man, 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 just no, no, just no, man, just <laughs> no. <laughs> and I was like, and I felt, I felt really embarrassed. I kind of was like, oh, shit, what have I fucking done? And and it's something, and bizarrely, it's something that I would never do as an actor. I'd mm. never, I'd never go there and try and put a hat on a hat or, you know, make something that wasn't there. I'm always a very instinctive actor. I don't particularly like rehearsals. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not one that's a stickler for the script. You know, I'm not one who likes to overanalyze things at all. I'm the complete opposite. I, in fact, like to just walk on set and give it a crack you know, and then yep. find, find my way through it. Um, so bizarrely, I was kind of going against my own instincts. But, you know, once he said that, I was like, okay, all right, then I'll just shut up and look at what's in front of me and that's my job. So I was going to say a lot of these films are very, very focused heavily on relationships and many of his co-stars have ended up together. You know, we've seen Gosling and Eva Mendes and <laughs> Fassbender, who I, I love Michael Fassbender, you know, he yeah, and his yeah. wife on that on that movie you were on. That's so right. that's right. Again, is that just going more to the realism? So if I if I can cast these people that have this great chemistry and it just makes the performances even better. I think it's probably the density of and the depth that he expects from the material of, of from his actors, you know. Yeah. 
you know, he doesn't hire chumps. I mean, the, these aren't chump actors you're talking about. These are the real deal. You know, these are proper, gutsy, great actors, you know, yeah. um, who go headfirst into the material they have. You know, you could look at that and go, they got together, but it's always a big story, yeah. obviously, you know, and no doubt I saw the romance blossom between Fassbender and Alicia. I just think he expects an element of commitment and maybe that leads to that. And we have touched on this previously in a way. How hard is it being an artist in this country, you know, especially being a filmmaker, even someone that has had your success, how hard is it to have that type of maintained success in this country? It's really hard. It's still hard. It'll always be hard. I still struggle, you know. I still financially go in and out of being economically sound, you know. It's particularly hard when the Morrison government extends stimulus to every single other industry apart from the arts for political purposes, whether it be to punish the artists because they traditionally don't vote liberal and they never will. But one has to ask the question, why? Why leave someone out? You know, why do that? So it is hard. Funding is always cut from the arts. It's cut every time a liberal government gets in. It gets halved and halved again. The ABC, they try and strip that out to pander to Rupert Murdoch. They're the, the strings that are kind of at play here you know, with the industry as a whole. And then it's a shit fight down the bottom too because it's competitive as well. You know, you got to have the right look, right talent, right place, right time. You know, you got to be on the way up with your career, not on your way down. There's been periods where I'm the go-to guy for everything. And then there's periods like the last couple of years where I've had the most disastrous couple of years I've had in a very, very long time. I've just kind of gone out of favor. And that's, that's what you get used to, I guess. You get used to the ups and downs and you've just got to ride them out because you know that eventually it's going to come back around again if you if you stick at it. I always thought to myself, you just got to be last man standing with this. You just got to, you just got to keep turning up, you know, a bit of a rugby league analogy. You're right. To go further into that sport analogy is that there's a lot of talented people who don't play many first grade games. They lack the commitment and all that other stuff that goes with it yeah and then there's there's the flip side the people that aren't as talented but will work harder than anyone that ultimately end up making it i mean do you yeah it's a great testament i guess to your mental fortitude because it's really hard you, you know what i mean it's much easier oh, you know what it'd be, it'd be much easier life if i just did this absolutely why would you put yourself in a position where you you know are in the firing line why would you continually put yourself in a position where you're being rejected any sane person would go, enough's enough, I'm out of here, man. You, you know, there's only yeah. much you can take. Why, why would you do that? And I guess the answer to that is it's in your soul. You've got to do it. Mm. I don't, what else am I going to do? I won't be happy. And at the end of the day, my happiness is paramount. And ironically, the thing that makes you the most happy actually also makes you the most unhappy. Yes. And, and the most anxious and the most insecure. Yep. It's a head fuck, man, but... It's a, head <laughs> it's a head fuck that I've lived my whole life and I'm going to continue to live it and there ain't no turning back now. So, And, you know, like you say, the, to, you know, on the footy analogy, it's like there are undeniable stars in the game of rugby league and then there are journeymen. And I consider myself to be a journeyman. Now, film I watched just the other day, actually, Cargo. Yeah. So Martin Freeman was in that film. Now, how much of this is we want a great actor in this lead role and how much is... We need an international star so we can sell this internationally in order to get the funding to get this film made. Well, there's always that balance. I mean, I know from as a filmmaker that 
you know, there is the economy side of it, there's the economic side of it, and then there's the artistic side of it. If those two things can come together, bang, you're happy as Larry. What I do know from uh, the cargo perspective is that those guys were mad Martin Freeman fans. They're mad Hobbit fans and that he was their number one choice. And that was it. That's who they wanted and they got him. And he ticked all the boxes, you know, he got, he got the money. So that was a happy marriage. That was a, you know, a creative and economic uh, marriage that pleased everyone, but it's not always like that. I mean, you know, I've been trying to get films up for years and the stumbling block, the major stumbling block is always that is always that they want more. They want more security for their investment. They, they essentially want to mitigate any risk whatsoever to invest yet still yeah. want to take the lion's share of the profits, mind you, you know, you know what I mean? And that's kind of it. Yeah. It's like, I get it. If you're going, Hey, I'm risking everything here. And so I'm going to take 80% of what you do. I get, I get that, but that's not the way the film industry works. It's, it's pre-sold. It's, you know, there's, there's minimal risk left on the table for, for these people. And the creatives are the ones that get suffered. But that, I mean, that's since the dawn of time, you know, artists and musicians and painters, the, you know, people who just have to create are always going to be taken advantage of by people who want to make money off it because you need to say what you need to say. And so that's the uphill battle with making films is that you need to, A, find a person you're happy with. B, they need to, you know, secure that, investment and and then some and this is quite often why i mean once it got pointed out to me i kind of saw this everywhere is there's the young white guy older white guy poster you see it all the time you'll see it now everywhere you go you try and cast a movie with a you know a guy my age you know blah 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 cast him he will never be enough for a distributor or an investor or a financier or a you know a sales company You'll also because it's not appealing to as many demographics. I guess so. You just seem to need the support of the kind of older white guys. Well, you know, and, you yep. know whether it's Pacino with Josh DeHarmel or Bruce yes. Willis or someone else. It's like ha- go and have a look at all those posters. There is an algorithm there that works in the marketplace. I guess otherwise, why do it? That filmmakers have to adhere to. So you could you could catch yourself one fish, but they want two. And then quite often they want three and four, you know, so. They say there's only so many types of films that get made. I mean, does that fall into, oh, this is a father-son story and this and that story because they've all got to fit within this certain algorithm? I think undeniably cinema's in the era of, you know, the, the tentpole superhero thing. And from a studio perspective, that's all they're doing. I, I mourn the days of watching the Pelican Brief with Julia Roberts and there's no thirty million dollar movies left anymore. They're all two hundred or they're two. There aren't and there's no stories left. I mean the big movies used to be driven by big stars and the big stars used to choose different stories. That's what they did. You would see a plethora of different experiences on the screen. Not diverse stories, because that's something that's thankfully starting to grow. It was never that. But it was different stories. And now, you know, I feel like it's the same story over and over again. But, I mean, now television is a place, isn't it? Yes. We're telling those stories. Where Derek C. in France is telling his story about mental illness. You're not going to find a place for that. That story would never get told at a theatre anymore. No way. No chance. Maybe in France if it was French, you know, but not here. And that's okay because there's there's other platforms for it now, Mm. you know. 
But I think what, you know, in terms of what we're talking about, about that algorithm of casting and getting films up, is that outdated now? You know, I mean, now we're seeing a shift to 65 plus female, particularly in Australia. Yeah. That That's the audience. That's the market. That's who's going to cinema. But with indie film, which is the space I'm in, you still need a big star. You know, you didn't used to, but now you need a big star and you need a big star for a $5 million movie. They used to be 15, $20 million budgets. And then, like I say, you need the star and then an offsider. So it's this constant jigsaw puzzle of who's available Who's going to want to do it? Because that's hard enough as it is, finding an actor of worth that's going to want to do it. Are they right for the role? That's my dilemma always. And then are they going to invest their time and energy into an unknown filmmaker? Because that then becomes the biggest hurdle that you have. Show me your movies. Show me why this massive star who can work with anyone and do anything is going to risk making a bad film with an unproven person then that becomes yeah. the battle. The way around that used to be that, okay, well, let's go and make a $1 million movie or a $2 million movie. Let's go and make The Boys. Let's go and make those sort of movies. But then when there's no space for that anymore, hmm. where, where do the chances come? So what gives you, I guess, the most creative satisfaction, you know, whether it's TV, film, writing, directing, where do you find your great love and passion now? To be honest, my greatest passion now is writing, without a doubt. I like immersing myself in a story and not just immersing myself in a person, if that makes sense. Yep. It's a broader spectrum. You're able to talk about what you want to talk about. There's more solitude in it, but I like to just bunker down and do it. I, I spend all my day, I'd be doing it now if I wasn't talking to you. You know, that's all I do. I get up, I drop, drop the kids off and I write and that's all I do. That's my life at the moment and I love it. I really like it. And you get to collaborate with people in a different way but you're part of the process and you're part of getting those stories out there. And I like that's, that has far more satisfaction attached to it than, you know, being a day player as it, as it were. And that's not to say I don't love acting and I don't, you know, want to still do it. It's just that I want it to be special. You know, I want that experience to be special. And if it's not there, then maybe don't do it. And is this just for your own projects or do you want to, or do you already specifically write for other people's productions whether it's tv or film or whatever it might be like in terms of a paid role rather than something you have to write and then go and generate funding for are you taking any paid writing gigs for other people everything that i'm doing at the moment is generated first of all from me but i have teamed up with other companies so i have a tv show i've created with daniel krieger uh that is with john edwards and roadshow rough diamond that we're um about to go into, well, COVID kind of closed it down and now it's opening up. We're hoping to get into the writer's room for that. And that was a, an original idea by Dan and I. And then there's another that I've, you know, I've just signed with, um, with Bunya, who did Sweet Country and um, Mystery Road. Uh, so I've got a TV show with them, which is actually set in Chicago and it's an internal affairs eight-part series about the seedy underbelly of the police force, which right now is pretty... <laughs> pretty, pretty good thing to be putting out there, you know, and I've been working yeah. on that for a while. Uh, I've, I've got another project with Blackfella Films that we're working on that I've got the rights to a particular book for. Um, I've, you know, Dan Krieger and I wrote a film that we um, just sold to Kristen Burr, who is ex-Disney executive who 
um, did Dora the Explorer, and that's a uh, uplifting 65-plus film about two old people who escaped from an old person's home to go and see a, um, a death metal concert with Ozzy Osbourne in Germany, and that's a road trip. Um, I love road trip movies. Yeah, me too. And then there's, you know, there's other, I've got two um, features that I've written that are with John Schwarz, who's, uh, he's producing those with me. So I've got stuff all over the place at the moment and, you know, I, I kind of worked for nothing on it for a while, but now I'm actually starting to get paid to do it all, which is great, you know. Knowing that some are going to fall over, some are going to get up, where I guess is your percentage normally about what goes and what doesn't? Well, I'd have to say to you, because I don't have any that are up, I'd have to say the percentage right now is zero. <laughs> um, I learned a, a kind of valuable lesson about tempering your expectations and hope uh, a few years ago where I created another TV series that I sold to Lawrence Bender in, in America, and they picked it up to uh, produce it. And then uh, they took it to Fox TVS, which is a big uh, network over there and fox picked it up and i signed this deal and they call it a um an if come deal if this happens this is what will come to you yep and you look at those deals man and there are like zeros slides of zeros on them <laughs> you know you're going this is what i get now this is what i get if this happens then if this happens it's this then if it makes this and if it sells here and if it syndicates here and you know season two here and season three here and you add it all up and your eyes are like a blaze and you're slapping yourself on the back going i'm a genius i've done it you know i've got lawrence bender i've got fox what could possibly go wrong and then it just and then it got to the top of hbo and it got to the last stumbling block and it didn't happen and then it didn't happen anywhere else you know to the other places we took it so i you have to temper your expectations you have to take the small wins you have to look at it philosophically and go now I have contacts with those people. That's laid yes. a platform for this. You know, you can't expect for anything to get up. And again, it comes back to what Rolf Tahir said to me, which is value the experience. You know, you've got to value the experience. So you go insane. It's all great in theory. But as you say, if you're looking at those types of contracts and then they just disappear, we're all human. <laughs> you can, yeah. I'm, sure you've, I'm sure you've had a few punch in the wall moments. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to be five weeks into pre on a feature film that you've written that you've been working on for years, which I was in Vancouver a few years ago, and for that to shut down literally after, you know, five weeks of pre is absolutely devastating. It's devastating emotionally. It's devastating economically. I mean, I moved my family over there. We set up camp there. We were going to be there for months. Um, so why did that one break down then? Cast, cast and financing. It came down to the very same thing. We had a particular level of cast that we thought was going to get the deal done, get it across the line. In good faith, we started moving forward. And in the end, the goalposts changed. We needed more cast. We needed a bigger cast. We needed to add more elements to it. And mind you, this was with a very solid cast to start with. I mean, this is with John Bernthal, Joel Edgerton, and Numi Rapace. I mean, what else do you want? Man? You know what I mean? And this is... You needed more than that. More than that. More than that. We need more than that. And this is what, you know, this is where we're at with this stuff. They always want more. And, and that, was, that wasn't a, we're not talking a $15 million film. We're talking about a $5 million film. It wasn't big. Wow. Also, the other thing about that too, and this is what happens in the industry, is, you know, you earn your money by acting and all that sort of stuff. And that's how I, how I get by while I try and get my films up. And, you know, you set a date for a film. And then because of cast or whatever reason, it gets pushed another four weeks. 
Then it gets pushed again to another four weeks. Then another three, then another two, then another four, then another four, and then the two, and then before you know it, you've said no to every single acting job for the last year. And that's what happened with that movie. Eventually I get to Vancouver. I'm broke, man. I'm out. I'm tapped out. I'm a year unemployed, pushing this thing along the road, kicking, kicking the can, you know. I get there, it falls down. I don't get paid after five weeks of working on it, you know. I end up borrowing money off my ex-girlfriend to feed my kids. Do you know what I mean? That then takes me, you know, takes me another year to kind of pay it back. And, you know, the setbacks financially as well can be quite damaging. But again, you just get up, you go, fuck, I got a roof over my head. I got people that love me. I got, you know, I believe in these projects and you just get back on the horse and you go again. And in between, I guess, those times, you also do voiceovers. That seems to become a bit of a popular one now for actors being able to pick up some voiceover work. I know you've just built a booth in your home. Sitting in it. <laughs> How's the sound? It must be beautiful, yeah? Really good, mate. Yes, really good. <laughs> but is that something you enjoy? Is, is that literally something just so you can do other things or tell me about that? Oh, look, it's a means to an end. You know, it's um, feeding my kids. It's paying my rent. That's what it's for. You know, voiceovers are their own beast. You know, advertising is its own beast. You know that. Yeah. Quite often there's 10 creatives in a room, you know, while you're doing a voiceover and they don't want your opinion. That's that's hard to take, you know. That's probably the moment in voiceovers where I swallow my pride and go, fuck, you know, I've got all this yep. wealth experience and you don't want me to share it with you. You know, you guys talk amongst yourselves and if I quite often kind of throw something in there or get shut down. That was the hardest thing to take with the voiceovers. Was like, okay, this is a different game here. In, in, yeah. in other industries, people want, they value my input. In this one. I was going to say, I wouldn't take that personally though either because everyone wants the ego of who the final decision maker is. And you're right, at times it's not a collaborative environment at all. And everyone has, you know, there's big money in advertising and there's big money in those positions that are above the director and the bloody voice actor, you know, and they are more important positions than the voice actor. And also those people have to justify their large salaries. So, you know, there's that too. So, you know, and like I say, it's not, you know, it's a different beast. It's a different world. You just got to adapt to it and you just go, okay, this is a good money and it's not a hard job. I mean, shit, my dad laid bricks for his whole life. That's a tough job, you know. Cleaning toilets is a tough job. This isn't a tough job. I'm lucky, you know. I'm lucky that I have a skill that I can kind of diversify and build a little booth in COVID and you know, away I go. I'm very lucky. Actually, we're just touching back on that then. You know, I come from working class parents as well. You know, like my mum and dad worked at local abattoirs in Mudgee and, yep. you know, that's something I didn't want to do. Yeah. You know, not that there's certainly anything wrong with, you know, what my parents did or, or yeah. how I was brought up. You know, I was we were very comfortable. And I'm wondering on your opinion for when these times do get tough or whatever else, do you find that you come back to my dad laid brick? If this is the worst that can happen, it's not too bad. I remember my dad said something to me and it was around the time that I talked about earlier where I was deciding what to do, you know, was I going to keep being an actor, I'd failed at school, all that kind of stuff, do I move to Sydney, do I not? And I said to him, Dad, I'll just come and work with you while I sort my shit out. I'm just going to work with you. And it was my dad that turned around and said, I didn't lay brick, so you had to. Yep. And that was his philosophy. He was like, I didn't bust my ass and have a shit back and be lying on the floor every night, you know, neck braces and back braces, which my dad was and slogging out. And mind you, this is at a time when tradies didn't get paid. You know, tradies get paid. Well, they do now. They yeah. do now. Tradies get paid, man. But there was a, you know, everyone was at university. It was like, if you weren't university educated in my dad's day, you know, I was pulling in more doing ads 
and mind you, I was telling you how shit the pay was, but I was pulling in more than my dad was pulling in. My one day as a kid doing an ad was a week for my dad laying bricks. So I've always been acutely aware that I'm an extremely privileged and lucky person to come out of a not privileged situation. And that is my mum and dad that laid those foundations. You know, it'd be a disservice to him to turn around and not follow my dreams after he said that to me, you know, after he worked hard and said, I did it so you didn't have to. You know, my parents have been really supportive, really, really supportive from the get-go. Could not be more supportive when other parents would say, dude, give up. Like, get a real job. Get a real job, honestly. <laughs> like, just get a real job, seriously. Yeah. Suck it up, man. You know, you're being stupid. It's a pipe dream. But I've always had that support and that's a really mean always meant a lot to me. Well, just even following on from that now in terms of happiness, work-life balance. You know, you've got a partner in the industry and kids. How do you balance their happiness, your happiness? Like you said, you had to move to Vancouver for yeah. however long you were going to, then you had to come back, you know, off the back of a disappointment. How do you balance the family dynamic and happiness? They always come first, obviously. There isn't a job I'll take if there's something that needs attending to at home that's more urgent. The upside of it is that my kids get to go all around the world and mm. all around the country. Great experience for them, you know. The downside of it is if they don't come with me, then I could be three months without seeing my kids, you know, which I was last year when I was working working in the Kimberley and flying direct. I was doing two shows at once the year before and flying straight from the Kimberley to Hong Kong to work there and then back to the Kimberley and no home in between. That was tough. Yeah, I bet. That was months and that was literally finishing on set on one place, you know, driving five hours to the airport, then getting a flight from bloody Broome to Perth, then Perth to Hong Kong, then going and then literally kind of getting off at Hong Kong, going onto the set there. I mean, the orchestration that went into that from both parties was <laughs> extraordinary. And I was just this kind of zombie in the middle of it, just going, by and bouncing around and going back and forth. But again, what are you going to complain about that? What's fantastic, you know? But in terms of balancing life and work, you know, I get to work from home, which is great. It's hard to switch off when you're on a roll, you know, when I'm writing something and I want to get it done, but you just got to do it. You know, kids walk in the door, tools down. It's kid time. Um, yep. You know, drop the kids up the, off at school. I'm gunning the car to get back here to dive back into being creative again. You need both, you know. I, I'm not a, I'm a shit dad when I'm, don't have that for myself. There's no doubt yep. about it. And I think, you know, COVID tested a lot of people, including myself, you know, it tested my sanity. I just felt the whole time like I was going, man, oh, these definitely. kids are 24-7. Like there is no <laughs> let up. And my boys are pretty full on, you know, they're pretty full on dudes. So, you know, wrangling that and trying to find things to do for these energetic kids when you can't go anywhere and you can't leave the house and you can't, you know, I, I was finding that, throwing a mask on and going to Woolworths was <laughs> was heaven. I was like, fuck, I'll go to Woolworths. Give it to me, man. You know, that was the highlight. So, yeah, look, I'm pretty good at switching on and off, I think. You know, I'm getting better at it, and that's, you know, their, their happiness is most important. But you do have to look after your own soul, you know, otherwise you're a, yep. you're a bad partner and a bad parent. So it's equally as important. And would you encourage your kids to follow in your footsteps, mate? I wouldn't discourage them, but I wouldn't encourage them. You know, I, it's it's too hard. It's um, If the fire is burning in your belly, then I have to say to you, that's what life's about. Do it. 
Yep, follow. If you're doing it for other reasons, forget about it. If you want to be famous, it's not worth it. If you want to be rich, it's not worth it. But if you have a genuine fire in that belly because you need to tell stories and be creative, then you don't have a choice. Go for it. I'll support you Yep, all the way. That's the way I see it. And they're both named after actors, aren't they? Yeah. It's a bit wanky, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sydney's named after Sydney Poitier and uh, Marlon, obviously, after Marlon Brando. Not Marlon Wayans? Not Marlon Wayans, bizarrely. <laughs> yeah. One of the first acting lessons I ever got was from my dad watching Sydney Poitier movies when I was a kid. And he just said, look at that guy's eyes. He acts with his eyes. And I never forgot it. And um, yep. growing up, when I, when I kind of understood the craft, I was like, he was right. He was right. But that's interesting. Your dad would pick up that. Yeah, my dad loves he loved movies. He loved all those old actors, you know. It's what we kind of did. But, yeah, not from that world. But, I mean, Sidney Poitier is undeniable, isn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, the strength he has on screen is incredible. You can't you can't look away. Who's in your bucket list of directors or filmmakers you want to work with? Hmm, interesting. Well, I mean, you're not going to go past Scorsese, are you? No. You're not going to go past him. Uh, Pedro Almodovar, which will never happen because <laughs> I've – can only speak one language and it's not the right one. You know. <laughs> uh, Mike Lee. I've always wanted to work with Mike Lee. Ken Loach. You know, I really was into that social realism um, yep. at the time, you know, and even people that I've worked with before, um, Michaud and Cien France again would be amazing. What about in terms of working with your friends? Because you wrote and directed your first film alongside Brendan Cow, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. First feature, yeah. Yeah, I directed it and co-wrote it with Brendan. I know you mentioned before about writing things that you're developing yourself, but yeah. would you like to get into just some of these other writing rooms or these other showrunners and things like that just to test your wares in terms of you writing someone else's world? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I, I, I tried to get a writing agent a couple of months ago and couldn't get one in Australia. I don't. They said it's very difficult at the moment to people without the credits. I have a lot of scripts that I've written that are kind of sitting in development with different great people, but until one hits the screen, it's hard to convince people. But to be completely honest, I don't really have the time right now. I've got so many deadlines and so many things that, I, you know, I don't have the headspace for it. I mean, I'm going from even today when I finish this, you know, I've got to finish. We just got development. Dan Craig and I got development through Screen New South Wales for a, for a feature film. I've also got to finish off Another one with Dan Craig that we're just finishing today that Netflix want to look at. I've got to redo the Bible on my internal affairs thing for Bunya. It's like it's chockers at the moment, particularly after kind of COVID happened and I thought I'd Mm. get time to do it, but it was actually the opposite with the kids. Um, (laughs) So many many deadlines at the moment that, you know, I'm pretty chockers. Now, outside of this, you're also pretty prolific on Twitter, Mate, with uh, <laughs> lots of strong strong opinions on sport, especially with the Brisbane Broncos and yeah. politics, you know, obviously given what we've already spoke about so far, but also Donald Trump. I mean, oh. there are countless <laughs> tweets that I count of yours per day that you hammer him on. Oh, man. I, look, it's a waste of energy. I know it is, but I can't help it. I just... What makes you so compelled to engage? Is it an outlet for you? Well, it's outrage, isn't it? It's outrage. It's venting, it's outrage. And also you can't let these people have the loudest voice, you know. As much as people say, and I agree somewhat, that you're an armchair warrior and you're doing no good and it's, it's pointless, 
these people monitor this shit and maybe not Trump because he's a fascist dictator, but yeah. he's not going to care what people think. He's got his base, but policy changes because of public pressure. And it is undeniable that policy changes because of hashtags that are on Twitter. We saw it happen with the stimulus package. You know, they hammered, hammered Morrison into doing something about it, you know? So as much as you say, or people might say, you're wasting the time. I actually think it, like it or not, it is a, it is a place to, to vent your frustration and is a place where they go to, to gauge what public perception is because the polls don't work. No. They're never accurate, you know, so. It gives you a voice. It gives you a voice, you know, it gives you an outlet. You can't be silent, you know, to be, like everyone says, you know, to be silent is to be complicit. That's worse, you know, compelled to say what I need to say. If there's an injustice, I need to say it. You know, that's what a lot of my projects are about. One's actually about a, a um, Republican called John Smith wants an apology. And he's a Republican in a Republican town in the middle of America where the politician lies and his lies cause some poisoning in, in the town and make his son sick. And he kidnaps his politician. And it's a, it's a dog day afternoon about a guy that's had enough of the system and is fighting back. And all he wanted, it started out, all he wanted was an apology. He just wanted a politician to apologize, not spin more rhetoric, not twist it, not point the finger in another direction, just fucking own it and apologize. And that these days just seems like an impossible thing to ask for. I was going to say, it's harder to get that than get money, I think. 100%. And so he takes the law into his own hands and, and then the media get hold of it. And then we see how the media on both sides use it to their advantage. So that's, you know, that's a project I'm working with, which is a comment on, on America, American politics, and, and about why, why red voters vote red when the very system <laughs> is telling you that I'm not yep. backing you, that I'm not helping you. And somehow the psychology is that the Republicans are on the side of the disenfranchised, and they're not. You know, a lot of my projects whether they be about mental illness or social injustice are, are, are all things that I passionately believe in. And so the voice that I have on Twitter, at the very least, is being funneled into something. I'm not being complicit. Do you get worried there'll be any um, fallout from that in terms of having the voice? Or are you like, you know what, this is me and take me as I am? Ah, Look, I mean, I'd rather live a life fighting for injustice and saying what I believe in and being on the side of what I think's right, then, I mean, that's part of the problem, right? That is the systemic problem, is that people pander to the people that pay them. They pander to the people that, that keep them in their cushy houses and their cushy jobs and with their cushy pay packets, and they say fucking nothing, and that's gutless. Yep. And it doesn't help. And so I won't be that person. I don't give a shit what people think about what I say. I know my parents at times like, calm the fuck down. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you're making a fool of us and I can't stop. I just can't stop. You know, um, maybe one day I'll, you know, if my projects get up and I feel that they're out in the space there and, you know, people are engaging with those stories in a, in a way that is creative and possibly more meaningful and with a greater reach and greater articulation than, you know, the 
85 characters that we have on Twitter on a on a tweet, then maybe I'll you know maybe I'll give Twitter a rest. But while that piece of shit's spinning bullshit and the Murdoch media are doing it and the Russian bots are supporting that and Rome is crumbling and there are deaths in custody in Australia and the police brutality and I mean you could go on and it drives you insane the amount of injustice that's in the world and I can't not say something and in fact I look around at a lot of people with way bigger profiles than me and I go where are you where are you now all right well a couple of uh, questions just to wrap up on number one some advice whether it's a young actor whether it's a old actor thinking you know they're on the other side of things regardless of where you sit within your career what's some advice to someone who may be going through these tough times or thinking that it's not worth it or whatever else what's your advice to them my advice is to get writing and if you're not writing then put on a play you can do that just create art to create art you can do that with time that's all you need and i'd say just go ahead and let the fires in your belly burn give them fuel. It's not about the ending. I mean, when people say that thing, they go, you think you're going to make it? You go, well, where? Where's it? Hmm. What's the destination? There's no it. The human nature is to get something and want more. So I'd say don't focus on the result. Don't focus on getting the role. Focus on the audition and enjoying that and doing the best audition you can. You know, I think if I was to sum it all up, it goes back to what Rolf Deere said to me and enjoy the experience, not the result. And with all this taken into account, what do you feel is a real key to living life on your own terms? Be authentic to yourself. Don't take a step back. Just because people say no, it doesn't mean no. Don't be disheartened and create art. I mean, that's love it for me what life's about. And very last one, mate. It's something I'm just asking every guest, but could you nominate one other person that you think would be a great interview guest for me to speak to? Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll get access to Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, look, I would say talk to Blackfella Films at the moment. Yep. Talk to Rachel Parkins, talk to Darren Dale, talk to those guys about the importance of Indigenous stories and Black Lives Matters and what that means to them creatively, the struggles they face to get their stories told and embraced. At the moment, I think that's who needs the microphone more than I do. Mate, well, on that note, I think we're done. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. I know you got lots on, but um, yeah, we really enjoyed it, mate. Great chatting. Yeah, you too. Take it easy. I'll speak soon. Thanks for listening. Tune in to Lifting the Lid next time when we talk to someone else.